This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Robert Rim, Managing Editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Our guest for this session is David Castro, who usually serves as host. David is a graduate of Haverford College and the University of Pennsylvania Law School. He's the founder and CEO of the Institute for Leadership, Education, Advancement, and Development, also known as ILEAD. During his career, he's worked in leadership roles in the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office and in Pennsylvania government. He's been recognized for his work on behalf of communities through the award of several prominent fellowships. He's a National Kellogg Fellow, an Eisenhower Fellow, and in 2009 was named an Ashoka Fellow. David, welcome to the program, this time as a guest. Thanks, Robert. It's a pleasure to be here in a new capacity. Wonderful. Well, our focus today is on Ashoka's Empathy Initiative, and we're going to tackle an important subject, the role of empathy and leadership and leadership development. Now, to frame that conversation, can you talk about how you founded iLead and explain the organization's mission and vision? To really understand the beginning of iLead, you have to go back to the early 90s uh, when I was a prosecutor in the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office. I was recruited into the office by then District Attorney Lynn Abraham, and she had a vision of creating a unit that would work with community leaders in Philadelphia on neighborhood problems, really primarily in the area of nuisance bars and drug houses. And she brought me into the office and I created this unit which was then called the Public Nuisance Task Force. And the vision behind the Public Nuisance Task Force was to work with community leaders to close down these neighborhood nuisances. But it was an interesting um, program in the sense that it really had some very innovative strategies within the district attorney's office. Normally the district attorney's office flies solo and what you have is a situation when the district attorney goes to court, usually it's the prosecutor against the defense attorney, nobody else is involved. What we did in the public nuisance task force was create a multi-agency network that, that worked with the DA's office in closing down um, nuisance properties but also engaged, really broadly engaged community groups and citizen advocacy groups across the city in working collaboratively to identify these kinds of neighborhood nuisances and then to work with the district attorney's office to shut them down. The reason this is relevant is I, I had a interesting experience, unusual experience, because I came into contact with community leaders all over the city in a way that I think few people did except for maybe professional politicians. And I really saw dramatically the impact of community leadership on neighborhood quality of life from that experience. I learned that when you had really effective leaders in a community, in a neighborhood, things could get done really quickly and well. And we were able to do really uh, to, to make really bold progress in neighborhoods with very efficient investment of human resources and financial resources. On the other hand, when we had leaders who had deficits, 
we weren't able to make that kind of progress. And so out of that experience, I really began to think about community leadership. About the same time, I got into a fellowship with the W.K. Kellogg Foundation because my public service work was really in the public eye at this time, and, and I got nominated for this fellowship. And I ended up going to the Kellogg Foundation and taking a crash course in leadership. It was a leadership development program. And leadership was not something that I had thought a lot about before I had been in this program. I, I, leadership was something that I thought about maybe, you know, intermittently. It was something that I, you would hear people say, oh, you know, he's got good leadership skills. It wasn't something that I really spent a lot of time thinking about. I was a lawyer and I spent a lot of time thinking about how to become a better lawyer. But I really began to think deeply about the importance of leadership to community development through this experience with the Kellogg Foundation and life-changing experience, really. And when I got through that fellowship, I recognized that I wanted to change what I was doing, and I, I really became concerned about the lack of good resources available to develop neighborhood leadership. So out of that work really was how we got iLead founded, and Lynn Abraham, who was then the DA, a very good friend of mine, became the uh, co-founder of the organization, and we really worked to put it together. Um, and I think our, our mission is really unique in that sense, targeted at turning around uh, communities that are experiencing high levels of crime and poverty and all kinds of social problems through a leadership development strategy, uh, rather than what I would say normally happens in in public work where we get an issue-focused approach. This is what public people in public uh, policy tend to do. They tend to slice and dice the community through a variety of issues. Our, our lens was about the capacity of the human beings involved in a situation, how to give them the tools and the knowledge that they needed to be effective. And my belief was that if you could empower the people involved in a situation, then the, the issues would take care of themselves. And so that's been the, the thrust, you know, through which we've seen our work over all these years. And how does one implement innovative strategies within a well-established and highly structured organization such as the district attorney's office? Well, it's, it's tough. And I think that I had, in, I had a real workout of my own leadership skills. At the time that I was doing this work in the DA's office, I was also the president of the Young Lawyers Division of the Philadelphia Bar Association, which was a 5,000-member organization. I had an executive committee with over 30 lawyers, and we used to laugh because uh, we would say that working with such a, an executive committee of highly charged, very intelligent people is like the proverbial experience of herding cats. You know, they, nobody, everybody thinks differently. Everybody has a big ego. Everybody believes that they should be in charge. And, and the same thing is true in, in an organization like the district attorney's office. You have very strong personalities. So to be able to work effectively in an environment like that, and I actually had to work not only within the office, but I also had to work with multiple other, uh, departments, operating entities in the city of Philadelphia. So to exercise leadership in an, in an environment like that is truly challenging. Uh, you have to have terrific interpersonal skills. You have to understand systems. You have to be knowledgeable about the kinds of problems that you're addressing. And so I had this experience of both thinking about leadership and then practic practicing it in a very challenging environment um, over a period of years. And I think that that experience really laid the groundwork for 
what became the core content of our curriculum. But I can say that it's challenging. It's very challenging to do anything in a political environment, in a politically charged environment, because you have so many things that are competing agendas and personalities, and they get in the way of progress. And how does iLead actually convey and implement uh, the core competencies and skills entailed in effective leadership? And, and how do you address and overcome individual egos along that process? Well, I think that one of the th- things that's unique about iLead that emerged from all that work and thinking, it was both the experience that I had working with all these community leaders, emerging them, uh, uh, observing them in action, working alongside them, then also um, being in the W.K. Kellogg Foundation National Leadership Program and really participating in some of the best leadership development programs in the country, I had the opportunity to develop a very interesting theory about leadership. I think this is one of the things that's unique to our curriculum, and that this is organizing a skills approach to leadership development along two core themes. Our two core themes in iLead are what we call the interpersonal theme and the creative theme. The interpersonal theme of leadership, it really involves all of the interpersonal skills that leaders need to be effective. And if you think about what leaders do deeply and with an attention to how leadership works, one of the things you notice is that leaders have to have terrific interpersonal and communication skills. Leaders are always interacting with other human beings. They're always trying to process information and convey information. They have to be sensitive to the needs and the interpersonal context in which they're working. All that requires really powerful interpersonal skills. So that interpersonal theme has a tremendous amount of content and specific skills, and we try to work on all those skills through our curriculum. The second theme in leadership is about creativity. And I always talk about this in a common sense way. I say that, you know, leaders are people who are good at getting along with other people and working with other people, but they're also good at getting things done. Now, we tend to focus when we think about leadership, especially charismatic leadership, we tend to focus on the power that leaders have to get along with other people. So we imagine the leader being surrounded by people and having these powerful networks, uh, social networks in which they're able to operate. The leader is the person who's in the middle of the crowd and who's able to move the crowd through their network of relationships. But we also think about this creative theme in leadership, which says that leaders have to be people who are able to get things done. They have to be effective. And to me, when I use the word creativity in describing this creative theme in leadership, we don't necessarily mean innovative, although that's often part of what we mean. But what we really mean is leadership that creates something so that in all effective leadership, there is movement, there is change. Um, I always say you never will hear a good leader or a strong leader never comes into a situation and says, hey, hey, folks, everything is fine the way it is. You know, we don't have to do anything. Just don't worry about anything. You never hear a leader say that. Leaders always have an agenda. They always have a vision. They're always trying to make something happen, push something forward. So that effectiveness part is a critical part. One of the things that we've noticed in our work is that those skills involved in creativity and the skills involved in the interpersonal work of leadership 
are often in tension with each other. In other words, the things that make you really good interpersonally as a leader often are in tension with the things that make you really effective in getting things done. So what we've done in our leadership curriculum is look in a very detailed way at those two packages of skills and think about how good leaders integrate those skills. So we call that integrated leadership, the ability to be both effective and to work easily and well with a group of people. We refer to that as integrated leadership. And, and our curriculum really entails looking in a deep way at those two skill packages. Now, leaders are often strong-willed people. Uh, they've gotten where they are uh, by, uh, by determination, by discipline, a lot of times by ego. In a leadership position, the employees uh, are often fearful of going against the leader or speaking up to the leader. Uh, how would you uh, address that particular aspect of it? And uh, how do you communicate with leaders on a one-to-one -one basis so that they are, in fact, receptive to these groundbreaking ideas that you found to be so practical in the field? Well, I think that the interesting thing is that leaders often have deficits in these areas. I very rarely find a leader who's got a complete skill package, and they are often painfully aware of their deficits. So they know, for example, that if they have deficits in the interpersonal realm, they tend to know that they're experiencing a lot of conflict with people in their organization or it's experiencing conflict externally uh, outside their organization. So, and they, or they oftentimes are not able to make the relationships do what they want them to do. And we can think of all those kinds of failures in terms of opportunities to build stronger skills. So, one of the things I, I've learned is that leaders know where their deficits are. They may become good at hiding them, but they do have an internal recognition that they need work. And you can often, if you can get them in a space where they feel secure and not threatened, they will open up about what those deficits are. I think the same thing is true, you know, of leaders who experience deficits in the in the realm of creativity. We often have many leaders, uh, I've encountered so many leaders who are very charismatic, who are able to build very strong relationships, but they're not very effective. They, they're not able to get things done and they may experience all kinds of personal and organizational failure because they're not able to actually move an agenda forward. And I can't tell you how many times I've, I've met with leaders who are talking about accomplishing something and then five years later they're talking about exactly the same thing. They haven't made any forward motion on it. And at that point we can always have a conversation and say, hey, we both know that something's going wrong here. You know, Something is not working right and if we can sit down and talk about it then we can get them to understand where they may be experiencing um, deficits and then work on those work on those deficits. And and we're very specific about this. In other words, there's no ambiguity in our curriculum. We're able to isolate very specific skill sets in the interpersonal area and in the create in the area of creativity and focus very sh sharply on specific skills that someone can then work on and gain mastery of that skill and then later on say, you know, wow, now that, now that I understand this, I'm able to do it much better. 
And and what are those specific skill sets, David? Well, here's let me. I'll just talk a little bit about the interpersonal uh, set first. The so in the interpersonal realm, we look at uh, the following. We look at the ability of the leader to listen deeply, listening skills. The ability of the leader to do something that we call surfacing mental models. And this really starts to get into empathy because surfacing mental models is really about understanding how someone else thinks, the categories and the impressions and the theories of reality that they bring to a situation. So the whole idea of surfacing mental models is being able to understand how not only how you think but how somebody else thinks who you're interacting with and how does their perceptual framework affect the way they see the world. Um, So we call that the skill of surfacing mental models. We help people to focus on surfacing interests, the interests of of, um, people working in a situation. We help them on their negotiating ability, their ability to build relationships, their ability to resolve conflicts, their ability to what we do is we call it coping with difficult personality types. Oftentimes, unfortunately, we live in a world where People in the operating environment that we're in present serious personality issues that sometimes border on mental illness, and you have to be able to cope with people like that so they don't disrupt group process. We have we we work with people on understanding group dynamics. We work with them on their public speaking, and we work with them on how to broadcast their message beyond their organization. So all that's in what we call the interpersonal realm of leadership and. Um, usually in listening to someone's experience in their work, we can diagnose fairly well what's working for them and what's not working and figure out where in that skill set we need to do some work. Switching gears to the creative theme, the, the ability of a leader to get something done, we have the ability of the leader to engage in visioning, their ability to assess current reality, their ability to build shared vision, their ability to create what we call structural tension, which is it's a it's a it's a difficult uh, concept, but once you master it, it's very powerful in helping people to become more effective. And we can talk about that later more if you want. Uh, there is also the idea of structural conflict, which is something that happens in the leader or in the organization that prevents forward progress on on the leader's agenda. And then systems analysis and systems thinking, which is really about managing complexity. So these are all the disciplines or skills involved in being effective. And uh, that's that's the second skill package that we look at. So this is it's not an ambiguous um, or or um, touchy feely thing when we work with leaders on on building their skills. It's not just sort of, you know, hey, get everybody in the room and sing Kumbaya or it's not an, an exercise, a general exercise in personal empowerment. It usually is very specific to what they can do well, where they need to figure out how to strengthen their their practice, and looking at their team and recognizing what how they need to strengthen their team so that they can bring these important skills into the organization in order to be effective. And what makes you and your team good listeners, David? Well, listening is one of those skills that one has to practice all the time and and really make a discipline of practicing. Uh, it's sort of like shooting foul shots for a basketball player, if, if I could say that. I'm always struck 
watching athletes how you got to go continue to go back and back and back to the fundamentals. It's like a baseball player working on their their swing or you know any other number of, of, of examples. But the ability to listen is so fundamental to communications and analysis of anything. I think of listening as the cornerstone of all communications that takes place in an organization. So listening, we, we get better at listening really by practicing and becoming very self-aware of those things that interfere with our listening, becoming attuned to the signs that we're not listening well and that uh, we've maybe lost our ability to listen in a particular situation. I think that one of the things that you can do in an organization to improve your listening ability, and again, this ties closely into the subject of empathy, is to practice self-reflection. Listening, if you can't listen and evaluate your own behavior and listen to your own thoughts and what's going on inside your own head and heart, that becomes uh, uh, that weakens your ability to to do it externally. I often find that people who are very reflective are capable of listening, and people who are not reflective are not good listeners. Now you mentioned conflict earlier, and certainly a lack of listening uh, often directly leads to conflict. Uh, tell us on the other side of the coin how conflict can actually be used in a positive, effective way. Sure. Well, I think. Conflict is an interesting word because we have a lot of negative associations with the word conflict. I think most people think of conflict as being something that we have to get rid of. And in our leadership practice, we have a very specific way of defining bad conflict and good conflict. I think of bad conflict as within a, an organization or a, a group as the use of force to try to gain agreement or to move something forward. And that's pretty much universally a negative experience. It's something that creates real problems for an organization. If an organization becomes dependent upon using force to gain buy-in or to work with people externally, eventually that sets up systems which slow down and in some cases end up destroying the work of the organization. It's, it's, it's captured in the, in the old adage that he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Uh, the use of force is ultimately very destructive um, in human relationships and human systems. But having said that, conflict also can sometimes just entail difference and and difference is is profoundly helpful in learning. So if two people see a situation differently and they bring different ideas to it, again, this is a, something critical to why empathy is so important in making progress and learning. Because in empathy, what we really learn how to do is to experience how someone sees something differently than the way we see it. And it's from that difference that we learn. So that's what I would call good conflict. Good conflict in an organization is where we get people around the table who bring diverse ideas, who bring differences in perspective, and we're able to process and understand those differences in a way that makes us smarter and that leads to innovative action. So what we want to do in organizations is we want to cultivate that good conflict and avoid that 
bad conflict, which has to do with the use of force. The pr primary problem with the use of force is that ultimately when people, are, when people use force or when they're subjected to force, they stop thinking and, and, and interacting in ways that are constructive and that lead to learning. And instead, they become focused on revenge and reprisal. And oftentimes, those uses of force escalate to larger and more damaging uses of force. So the real issue in dealing with conflict is we have to be clear about what we mean by conflict and when we're focusing on good conflict and when we are in entering into that bad conflict where we want to do conflict resolution. Conflict resolution to me means l helping people to stop using force and to embrace processing their differences in a way that allows them to learn from each other. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with Managing Editor Robert Rim and David Castro, President and CEO of iLeague. Now you mentioned empathy uh, when you were talking just now, and empathy is such a, a stimulating, challenging concept, a wonderful concept that's often not practiced. So let's look at your leadership development work through the prism uh, of empathy. Can you share with us what Ashoka's empathy movement is about and how you see your specific work connected to it? Sure. So Ashoka's doing something fascinating right now in the area of empathy. Ashoka is really focusing on the work of many of its fellows, and there are thousands of Ashoka fellows around the world, social entrepreneurs and innovators who are working on some of the world's most difficult problems in very innovative ways. What Ashoka has really observed is that there is a cross-cutting theme among the work of many, many of these fellows, and that is that it ties into the idea of empathy, and empathy meaning the ability to understand what other people are feeling and to use that as a guide in one's actions and to use the learning that comes from that to succeed in teams, to solve problems, to lead effectively and to drive change. And if we think deeply about that process of understanding how people are feeling, of gaining insight into the mindsets of others and, and the way that they see the world, I think we'll discover something very profound in there. It really, to me, it all ties into the golden rule, this very ancient wisdom that cuts across so many communities and cultures around the world, that idea of being able to project yourself into uh, the shoes of someone else and behave at, toward that person as if you were them or with concern for how they feel. And you see this expressed in the Old Testament, you know, um, 
in Leviticus, uh, it says, you know, uh, the stranger who resides with you shall be as one of your citizens. You shall love him as yourself. Um, we find it in ancient Greece, Greek philosophy. There's a, a Greek philosopher, uh, Pittacus, who said, do not to your neighbor what you would take ill from him. Uh, in Confu Confucius, uh, in, in, in Chinese culture, Confucius is, uh, famously wrote that one should never impose on others what one would not choose for yourself. In Buddhism, you find this uh, concept. Uh, and of course, in the New Testament, famously, uh, that one should love thy neighbor as thyself. So this is something that really just cuts across so many cultures, this idea of the power, the ethical and moral uh, principle of seeing the world from someone else's perspective and with concern for their feelings, and then using that as a as a bedrock for learning and and innovating and solving problems. Now you work with such a wide range of people uh, in your field. Uh, do you directly discover a basic human need for empathy uh, in most or all people? Well, I think what we've seen is that so many of the core practices in excellent leadership, good leadership, turn really on this principle of empathy. And I could talk just about a few of them. Um, of course, the primal one we've already talked about, the ability to listen. I mean, leaders have to be able to listen. When you listen deeply and well, you understand the perspectives of people around you. The whole idea that we talked about surfacing mental models, well, you know, this is a critical ability that we have to be able to understand how others see the world and how their assumptions and beliefs and prejudices and theories and life experience, how those things shape their uh, sense of the truth and shape what they want out of a situation. So that, that subject, surfacing mental models, is all about empathy. We talked about the ability to negotiate and build relationships, the ability to have emotional intelligence when one works in groups. Again, of course, you can see empathy runs through all of that. In, in the creativity area, um, one of the most powerful ideas in leadership and creativity circles around the idea of shared vision and the idea of building teams of people who all want to create the same thing for the same reason. Well, if you can't understand deeply how other people see the world, how they process things, how they feel about things, there's no way you're going to be able to build shared vision in an organization without that ability. So you can see that that um, human progress really has such a deep need uh, for this kind of thing. And what I can tell you in my experience is that so much of the dysfunction that we see in organizations and so much of the organizational failure that we witness and that we unfortunately sometimes experience ourselves uh, in our own leadership initiatives comes from not having these empathy skills uh, at the critical point where, where, we're, where we need them. It often comes because the people around us and the people who empower, who are in power, don't have those empathy skills. And it's the key to transforming a situation and improving it. And taking that a step further, how does each component of iLead's curriculum actually work to build empathy skills? 
one of the things I'm really big on in in leadership development is the is the difference between knowing something intellectually and doing it. And you can know intellectually how a receiver catches a ball in a football game. You know, you can understand theoretically how a surgeon might be able to go in and fix somebody's heart. But to be able to do it is a totally different process. And so one of the things that our curriculum does is really try to help leaders not only develop an intellectual appreciation of these things, but to discover modalities whereby they can practice. Practice makes perfect. It's easy for me to say intellectually, well, I know listening is important, but for me to actually sit down and be a good listener, that takes practice. Again, easy for me to know that people around me may see the world differently, but for me to actually be able to surface how they think and then work with how they think in gaining an understanding or building a relationship, again, that takes practice. So our curriculum is focused not only on building intellectual awareness, but in helping leaders actually develop methods for uh, practicing these things. I like to say to the people in our program, I always say, hey, the world is a gigantic living laboratory. And you can go out, if you are disciplined about it, you can go out and you can take any of these ideas and you can put them into practice all throughout your day, all throughout your work day. And then that really builds competence, competence and, and strengthens the skill set that the leader brings to any situation. And I, and I think that when you have more and more leaders who have that kind of strong skill set and are able to bring that strong skill set to bear, you get better and better results inside organizations. Well, let's delve a little deeper on sure. that line. Uh, give us the specifics of how this works in practice. How does iLead specifically approach the work of building empathy skills in the classroom beyond the theoretical? It's easy to to sit in front of a classroom and talk about this, talk about that. So how do you get beyond the classroom? How do you get beyond the theoretical? How do you make and implement these things in practice and convey that to people effectively? So I think I think we have really four primary modalities of learning these things. The first is not to be overlooked, and that is to read and hear the core ideas. And so I do believe that getting something intellectually, understanding it at the level of mind and theory is is sometimes critical. It's a critical first step. And what we will often do is we will have in class, we will expose people to quotations and writings, and we will expose people to lecture on the core ideas. For a lot of people, that will become a very powerful first step. The second step, which is so important, is to have dialogue. Dialogue is a way that people explore, of course, how these ideas have interface with their own lives and experiences and work. And so we practice dialogue in the classroom by asking and engaging all of our learners to take these ideas and explore how they fit within their own lives and experience. That's a, that's a second very powerful step in the learning pro- process. The third modality, of course, as I've suggested, is practice. And practice really takes place in our class in two, two senses. First, we, we create um, hypotheticals and role plays and 
projects that actually engage the learners in practicing um, a skill. So, for example, uh, in the listening, in the area of listening, we will do several exercises that require participants to sit and listen in a in a deep and reflective way to someone else that is very different in process from just talking to somebody about the importance of listening in negotiation we don't just lay out theories about negotiation we also put our students in role plays where they get to practice those negotiation skills uh, in a hypothetical environment what we then do is all of our courses also entail project work in which the learner will go out into their community and into their, this could be in their family, in their workplace, in their volunteer life, perhaps in a church or a civic organization. Um, and what they will do is then use that, those opportunities to practice their skills. So we talked about basically uh, reading and hearing, dialogue, practice. And then the fourth modality is, of course, reflection. And reflection, I think, is extremely powerful because oftentimes it's only after we have done something, talked about it, practice it, and then later are reflecting on it that we gain the deep insight. So reflection often comes later. And we like to call it the aha moment, you know, that moment of insight where you say, ah, finally, I get it. And in my experience, sometimes you have to do something four or five times maybe before you actually really deeply understand it through reflection you gain the insight that then solidifies that skill and then you then you really have it mastered so those are all the ways in which we try to approach it um, approach this work in our curriculum now everyone is unique and comes with differing skills and gifts so how do you draw people out if they're talkers or readers or shy or extrovert or impetuous or reflective and a whole host of other ors? Our courses take place over a long period of time. So we don't do a what I would call the load and dump theory of training, which is, you know, get everybody, you know, get everybody someplace for a weekend, talk to them for 18 hours and then let them go. As attractive as that sounds, the load and dump the yes, okay. <laughs> exactly. And 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 it, that's generally, in my experience, what happens in a, in a mode like that, where you know people can rarely remember something that they was dumped on them, uh, or what happens is they they t might absorb it for a few days, and then pretty soon after the experience, they dump they dump it all. So what we try to do is we work over long periods of time. We we generally our general practice is to work with groups say once a week for two to three hours a night over maybe a 20-week um, course so that people are able to then build relationships with each other and to work up trust within the, within the cohort. And then if you have somebody over a three- or four-month time frame, of course, then what you get is a lot of opportunities for them to integrate that learning into their life experience. So that's a critical difference, and I believe that's critical to drawing people out. I also think that if you're operating on all those modalities that I mentioned, you're really maximizing the chances for someone to learn because some people are more, as you say, like some people are more cognitive and they're going to get a lot out of listening and hearing and dialogue. Some people are going to require the practical experience in order to learn something. And for some people, it's going to come through that reflective process. 
But when you put people together over a long period of time, you have a lot of opportunities for learning. And I think that's, that's the, most effective, the most effective set of tools. And to illustrate how skill development and empathy works in practice, uh, would you relate for our listeners a specific example involving one of your students? Yeah, I mean, I can. There's so many, but I just I'll just mention a couple that stand out in my mind. Um, we had this is I'm going to go back three or four years, and we had a group of parents uh, in the Philadelphia school system who went through. A, I, I guess it was about a four-month project, and it focused on the interpersonal skills. We did a lot of work in negotiating and conflict resolution. And I had uh, a person in the program who came in to the program quite skeptical about any kind of uh, approach to negotiation through a collaborative process. She was focused on the idea that you had to be tough, that being tough was important, that it's sort of a tough world out there. And if you're not tough, people are going to walk all over you. And, and she was, you know, presenting in this, in this frame. And early in the uh, course of this program, she told a story about how her grandson, she had a grandson, and how her grandson had, had come home from a schoolyard fight with a black eye and that her advice to her son had been to send him back up to the schoolyard to uh, assault the kid that had given him the black eye and basically telling him, you got to stand up for yourself. If you don't fight back all your life, you know, people are going to take advantage of you. When we got to the end of our course, she related that this incident had happened again with another one of her grandchildren and that as a result of being in the course, she completely changed her approach to this. Instead of telling her son, her grandson to go up to the schoolyard and, um, you know, in essence, exact retribution, she had walked the injured child up to the schoolyard, found the, uh, assail the, the person that had struck her grandchild and sat the two of them down for a conversation about what had gone wrong and why had they resorted to violence to solve the problem. And she related that uh, at the end of this, telling us this story, she said, I recognized that my response to this situation was reinforcing a culture of violence in my community. And I just thought that was so powerful to illustrate the power of learning and how you could change you know, someone's response in a very practical and tangible way. I mean, here's two kids in a schoolyard. You know that however they learn to resolve that is going to be something that's going to be then repeated again and again and again in their life. And, you know, the, the cycle of violence is something that in a schoolyard fight, it maybe leads to a couple of black eyes. We know that 10 years later, it can lead to murder. So um, I thought it was a very powerful illustration of just making a change in, in, in somebody's life. I'll also say that, you know, we have had so many experiences of people who came into our program without a sense of their own ability to participate as leaders in their community and who, after being in the program, then go out and successfully become engaged. We've had people who have been elected to their local city council, have been elected to the school board, um, and in many cases, you know, they come to us and they tell us it's a direct result of our ability of what we learned 
and practiced in these courses. And sometimes it may take two or three years for that person to be able to master all of what they learned and put it into practice, but we see our graduates able to engage in leadership roles in ways that are very gratifying and that we believe in, that they believe derive directly from their experiences in the program. Do you feel that people are generally receptive to such change? Um, I think that I think that people are thirsty for new ways of interacting. I think a lot of people become extremely frustrated with getting the same uh, bad results from the same bad habits, and I think there is a hunger for new ways of approaching old problems, and especially when those new ways lead to different results. You know, Einstein famously said it, and I repeat it all the time, insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. And we live in a world in which we do the same thing and expect different results, and we don't get them. And uh, I think that what people coming out of our program often have is they have a new way of behaving, which can lead to different results over time. And that's, that's very refreshing for people. And you've worked with leaders for many years. So do all effective leaders practice empathy and are there different levels and qualities of empathy? I think there are different levels and and qualities of empathy. I think that not all leaders practice empathy. We have in our culture, we have a real problem of conflating the concept of leadership with the concept of positional power. In many cases, people appear to be leaders because they have positional power and they use their positional power to get what they want. In my way of thinking about leadership, leadership is really a force or a, I don't even want to call it a force. Leadership is a, is a capacity that becomes engaged when people don't want to use power to get something done. Um, where they, and where they, often where they can't because they don't have power. So leadership is a way of moving people in situations where you don't have organizational and, and, and positional power. Unfortunately, we see a lot of people who are able through politicking and through dysfunctional practices, they're able to acquire positions of power and then to use that power to get what they want. Oftentimes, those people have very little empathy. They have very little empathy practice because they don't need it. In other words, when you, when you have a lot of power, you're often able to just do things in without taking into account how other people will be affected. And that's a shame, but that is part of the reality of how the world functions. Um, I think that I also want to say that there's a real difference between what I'm going to call tactical empathy and substantive empathy. Um, there are people in this world, unfortunately, who are very good at knowing how other people think and feel but they don't necessarily care about those people. (laughs) So what they do is they use that skill to manipulate situations. Um, To me, there's a different character or kind of empathy in which the understanding of the other person includes a care and concern for them. And in that case, empathy is not simply clinical. It also has this moral dimension that includes care and concern for the person who you're trying to understand. And I think we see empathy, we see different flavors of empathy in the world. We see uh, empathy of people who are more strategic about their understanding. They perhaps are calculated. And then, of course, we do see what I'm going to call the higher levels of empathy practice. We see the kind of empathy that's really grounded in a moral vision of, of the world that involves care and concern for others around us. It would seem that 
the learning of empathy skills is particularly important to teach for young people uh, so that they can uh, assimilate that and use that in their lives going forward. And you're currently engaged in some pioneering work in the development of a charter school in Reading, Pennsylvania. Uh, would you tell us about that and what you've learned about leadership and empathy development among young adults? Yes. So this is a fascinating project. We're working with dropouts in the city of Reading. So we have a whole charter school that's premised on students who are either disengaged from the school or are at serious risk of being disengaged and who are high school age, grades 9 through 12. So these tend to be students that have not had a positive experience in school. They are not academic achievers and they often have had really terrifically challenging experiences in the school environment that make that make them want to not participate in that environment. So one of the things that we've seen and learned uh, about working with such youth. One thing that's very important is about the presenting positive role models and positive examples. We unfortunately, in a lot of our school systems today, we're very focused on the negative behavior. In other words, we're focused on telling people what they can't do. You know, don't take guns to school, don't take drugs, don't commit crimes, uh, don't become involved in bad activities, don't do anything shameful, uh, don't use bad language, et cetera, et cetera. You could go on and on. Unfortunately, we don't spend enough time telling youth what to aspire to. And this is one of the things that we try to do in our school, which is to create a positive vision of what a caring and effective leader does. How do they how do they participate in their community? How do they participate in their family? How do they participate civically? How do they become engaged? The other thing has to do with giving students opportunities to practice leadership through service learning, through actual projects. Again, I think Young people are at such a, and especially young people that have been disconnected from school, they have some really profound challenges in just mastering the core academic content that they need to succeed. So we know we have to be able to help them learn how to read, learn how to do math, learn about the world that they live in enough to be able to succeed. And what we have to do to help them be all that they can be is build in similar kinds of practical opportunities to build the leadership ability and the emotional intelligence, the social and emotional learning that allows them to be uh, successful. That's We know that that's not going to come through reading a textbook. We have to be able to present them with real live opportunities for experiential learning where they can see how to become an effective part of a group and how to build the kind of life that will lead to success. And in, in listening to you, you're speaking about social and emotional learning, and, and surely we all know the benefits, the clear benefits of empathy. Uh, yet what do you see are the, the primary barriers to the development of empathy as a leadership skill? Well, culture is a huge barrier. Uh, culture, we live in cultures that are extremely dissonant with that desire and vision of teaching children empathy. We live in communities that are very violent. We live in a world that's very violent. Children are surrounded by news and stories of violence. Oftentimes they're 
the movies that they watch, the television that they watch, the games that they play are filled with violence. So the culture is very difficult in the sense that it transmits messages that don't support necessarily that concept of practicing empathy as a way to build a better world. On the contrary, oftentimes the cultural context sends a message that says, you got to be tough, you have to fight back, you have to be perhaps violent yourself in order to succeed. So one of the things that you're doing all the time is you're swimming against that culture. The other big barrier is that there are so many examples of bad behavior, which of course is part of the culture. And when you see people who don't practice what they preach, when children see leaders who are engaged in bad behavior, then that builds cynicism and cynicism reinforces the dysfunctional culture. So I think that, you know, to really make progress, one has to be able to create environments in which a different culture dominates. That's one of the things that's powerful about having a charter school is that you can say, well, we're going to have different rules inside this container, which is the charter school. We're going to create different rules, different operating procedures. So in other words, we're going to say no fighting, no, no, um, we're going to have promoting peace and promoting positive engagement, promoting leadership, promoting the kind of values that we want to see and then surrounding uh, the youth with adults who live out those values in their classrooms and in their life experience. And that's very challenging. I mean, that's very challenging. You can't just pay lip service. You have to, you have to walk the talk because if you don't walk the talk, you immediately lose your credibility and then you've lost, you've lost the culture. Now, what needs to uh, to happen to draw more people into community service? Before you embarked on all of your community work, you were a successful lawyer in private practice. Uh, what was the impetus for you to leave that track in your life to do something different? And uh, how did that come about? Well, it's so many years now ago, it seems like a, a long distant uh, time. But um, I think that one of the things we have to do is give ourselves permission to want something different. Uh, oftentimes we're in cultures, in work cultures, that really promote more selfishness, more um, self-aggrandizement and pursuing of wealth and power. And I think what's interesting is that when you peel back the layers and you get to what people really care about, a lot of times they don't they don't really want that inside. They don't truly want that. They want something else. But they're being swept along in a current. And so one of the things that you have to do to encourage people is to give them the space and the freedom in order to express a different aspiration. Um, for me, you know, my, my life really took a turn uh, in those early years where I had the opportunity to do uh, pro bono work and work that was focused on the community. And ultimately, I found that work so gratifying and satisfying that it was, it became easier and easier for me to let go of, you know, maybe that more traditional path that would have been focused on just accumulating wealth and power. <laughs> and, um, and I cannot sincerely say, you know, looking back on it all these years later, I would never, I'm so glad I made the choices that I made because my experience has been so rich and uh, I feel so blessed to have been able to do the work 
that I have done uh, over these years. But I think, you know, it's about creating the space for people to reflect on what they really sincerely want to build out of their lives and uh, to be open to the idea that that might be different than what the culture is telling you, what the organization is telling you, what perhaps other people in your life are telling you that you should want. If you open yourself up to being honest about what you really want in your heart, your heart leads you in the right direction. Mm. Mm. Wonderful thoughts we should all keep in mind each and every day. Uh, one of the things I'd like to uh, just ask you uh, briefly is to uh, talk about your forthcoming book on creativity, which is called Genership, which addresses the fallacies that are inherent in uh, traditional practice of leadership. Uh, tell us a, a little thumbnail about that book and when it will be released. Well, that's great. And I know that um, our plan, Robert, is to have me come back uh, on at a future date when we're closer to releasing that and really talk in detail about it. And I'm looking forward to doing that. But just as a teaser, what I'll say is that um, we've done so much work over the past 20 years focused on creativity and leadership. And Genership is a book about a new capacity that we see emerging in leaders, which is the ability to create with other people, the ability that leaders have to build teams that create effectively. And really what Genership does is think about a new paradigm, as trite as that may be, a new paradigm for working with uh, within organizations and within communities in a way that goes beyond traditional leadership practice. So. I think it's a tremendously exciting idea, and uh, we're going to be talking about it. And the, the book really focuses on it, not just on how this new way of working in groups will gain traction and spread, but it also goes specifically into the concrete types of skills that are emerging that support that practice. So I look forward to uh, coming back uh, and uh, talking at length about Genership and creativity and and the things that get in the way of us having really effective creative practice within organizations. Likewise, I'm looking forward to that very much as well. Well, David, this has been a fascinating discussion, and thank you for being our guest today on Innovate Podcast. Uh, we invite our listeners to hear David's next empathy-related interview to be posted on Sunday, April 15th. Thank you so much, Robert. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.